Well, it's great to be in sunny Pasadena all through a long, snowy Chicago winter. I've been looking ahead to March and uh, Lake Avenue Church and Pasadena and in my mind, I never imagined rain in my visual images of what it would be like, but uh, here we are. Uh, we have our own sunshine here in the presence of God's people, don't we? Wonderful to be at a, a city church like this with people gathered from many nations, many walks of life, all gathered together for worship and uh, a huge privilege. Thank you, Greg, for the uh, opportunity to be with you this morning, worship with you, have the opportunity uh, to bring God's word. I want to uh, give you some investment advice this morning. Maybe you saw the title of this morning's message, Buyer's Market, I called it. Now, you may, you may not feel like it's a very good time to be investing. Uh, I'm not sure about the state of the economy in California, the state budget, not doing too well, right? Um, a lot of economic troubles in the world, worries about Japan and about oil in the Middle East. You may also feel like you don't have any personal resources to invest. I'm not just talking about financial resources. I'm talking about time, love, ministry, commitment to the care of others. You may feel like you're maxed out already. You have nothing left to give. But what I want to say this morning is simply this, that because of the costly investment that God has made in you through the life and through the death and through the resurrection of His Son, Jesus Christ, because of that costly investment in you, you are wise. If you invest everything that you are and have in the work of Christ's kingdom, everything you are and have, financial resources perhaps, yes, but prayer, love, ministry, attention, Everything that you are and have, that you could give it to the work of God's kingdom, you would be wise to give everything. I want to demonstrate that to you from the Word of God. I want to do it by telling a Bible story. It's, it's, part of that story has been read for us already. I invite you, please, to turn in the church Bible to page 997. We'll be looking at Jeremiah 32. I always think that I, I love a good story. I think most people do. And the best stories that I know are Bible stories, and this is probably a story that you don't know as well as some other stories in the Bible. It will repay our careful attention. It's a story of a man who bought a field, and at the time it probably seemed like one of the worst investments in the history of real estate. Let me explain why. If you know anything about real estate, you know the first three laws of real estate. Repeat after me, location, 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 right? That's what they always say. I think you know about that here in California. Uh, from everything I've ever heard, property's about, what, two, three times as expensive here as anywhere else. And it's all because you're in beautiful California. That's why. But as I began to study this passage, it occurred to me that there are probably some other principles of real estate. I went to Barnes & Noble. I looked in the practical section of the bookstore, and I found a book on the fundamentals of real estate appraisal. I said, that's the book I need. And there I read about the principle of anticipation. Anticipation. According to the principle of anticipation, how much a property is worth 
is partly based on how much people anticipate that it will be worth in the future. Makes sense, right? If um, I guess in California, somebody was straightening me out on this between services. If you know a, free, a freeway is going into that area, that property values rise because that'll be access and mobility. I have a friend in Illinois who has a beautiful wooded lot, and he's not too happy about the amount of traffic going by his home because out in Illinois, that drives the, the price of the property down. They, people anticipate it's going to be busy. They want a quieter place to live, and because of anticipation, the price goes down. Well, consider this man, Jeremiah, and the property that he bought. It wasn't a good time to buy. It wasn't a good time for him Personally, because he was in prison, he had been preaching God's true word of judgment against Israel, and King Zedekiah didn't take too kindly to that, and he said, we've got to have this fellow locked up. It's demoralizing for people to hear about judgment all the time. So Jeremiah was in prison, wasn't clear when or even if he would ever get out. And so it was hardly the time that he would want to buy a piece of property, and yet he did. There was another reason why it didn't seem like a very good time to buy. Let me just tell you about the war that was going on at the time. Uh, you see, in those days, you, if you look at verse 1 of Jeremiah 32, you find that uh, this story came from the 10th year of Zedekiah. That was the 18th year of Nebuchadnezzar, and if you're not sure what that means, just look at verse 2. At that time, the army of the king of Babylon was besieging Jerusalem. And it goes on to explain that Jeremiah was in captivity. Understand that the Babylonians had the most powerful army in the world. I mean, they were the United States of their day. They were the great military superpower. And God had long threatened judgment against his people. In fact, Jeremiah had been prophesying about this for decades, and finally it, it happened. This army from the north came down and completely surrounded Jerusalem, the most powerful army in the world. Well, according to the principle of anticipation, your property value goes down if your property becomes less appealing to prospective buyers. You'd be hard-pressed to find anything less appealing than having the most powerful army in the world actually camping on that piece of property. And that's exactly what was happening. The field in question was in the little town of Anathoth. That's just right outside Jerusalem. It's a very close suburb, and that is where the Babylonians were camping. I can tell you that during this siege of the city, the bottom absolutely fell out of the housing market. We read in chapter 33 that people were taking the stones of their homes and just pulling them out of the buildings and taking them to the walls of the city and trying to shore the walls up, uh, hoping desperately that somehow their lives would be spared. Try to imagine persuading a bank to give you a loan to buy a piece of property in enemy-occupied territory. I mean, even in the United States, they wouldn't uh, Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac that, I can tell you. Well, it was just at this moment that Jeremiah's long-lost cousin Hanamel showed up, visiting him in prison. Uh, I think of Hanamel as one of the great wheeler dealers of the Old Testament. There's probably somebody like this in your family. 
The cousin that shows up at the family reunion and says, have I got a sweetheart of a deal for you? It's a once in a lifetime opportunity. I'm going to let you in on the ground floor. Well, that was Hanamel. He showed up at the prison and he offered Jeremiah a field in their hometown, this little place called Anathoth. I'm not sure why Hanamel was offering the, the property. Maybe he just had given up on it. He thought the Babylonians would have it forever. He was trying to sell it to anyone he could. Maybe he was desperate, as many were in those days, for a little bit of money to buy a little bit of bread. But in any case, he came to Jeremiah, and he appealed to him on the basis of family obligation. You see, the promised land was sacred to the people of God, and they were not supposed to sell it, even if they were in debt and in desperate circumstances. But if they did have to sell it, they would sell it to someone from their own family, uh, one of their kin. That kinsman would redeem the property, a kinsman redeemer. This is the Old Testament language for this kind of situation. And so Hanamel came and he appealed to him that he would buy this family property. I'm sure if you had been Jeremiah's realtor, you would have told him not to touch the land. But that's not what Jeremiah did. You look at verse 12 and following. He took the deed of purchase. He looked at the copy of it. He signed it in the presence of witnesses. He took it to the people who oversaw property in those days. They had duplicate copies made. They stored uh, the the title to the property. I mean, it's just the way people would do it today, basically. You get together the money for your down payment, you look over the contract, you go to settlement, you sign the deed, they make lots of copies of it, and then the property has been purchased. I imagine, I mean, the Bible doesn't say this, so it's a little speculative, but I imagine uh, Hanamel laughing all the way to the bank. 17 shekels for a piece of land in Anathoth, I mean, he probably told his friends about it, and they laughed, and they talked about his crazy cousin Jeremiah, who actually paid good money for bad land. John Calvin, the great reformer, when he wrote his commentary on this passage, said that the prophet must have appeared to have been out of his mind when he bought a field that belonged to enemies. And so we might ask, why did he do it? particularly because I'm here this morning telling you that this is a buyer's market for people who have faith in the living God. But here's a story about somebody who seems to be making a bad investment decision. I mean, if I'm going to give you investment advice, I better be able to back it up. Why did Jeremiah do it? Well, for one thing, because God told him to do it. And that's the best reason of all to do anything. You see that there in verse 8. He says, I knew that this was the word of the Lord. And then verse 9, so I bought the field at Anathoth from Hanamel, my cousin. Sometimes there are times, there are places in life where the best thing to do is simply to do what God has told you to do. Maybe there is a sin, a habit or pattern of life that you know is self-destructive, and you know God would have you walk away from that. Well, if God is telling you to do that, if that's what His Word has said, and your own conscience is testifying that that is true, the thing to do is to obey the Lord and walk away from that sin. Maybe you have a sense of God's leading, that there's a conversation that you need to have, maybe about a problem in the family or 
a way that you might be able to help with the broken relationship. But it seems difficult. You don't know if people will be receptive to what you have to say, and yet you have this sense that God is pushing you in that direction. If that is the call that God is placing on your life, the thing to do is get busy and do it. Or maybe God is calling you to step out in some new place of ministry, to use your gifts in the city of Pasadena, to serve in Lake Avenue Church, maybe even to answer God's call to go to some far place. But whatever that step of obedience is, when you know that it's a place of obedience, the thing to do is simply to obey. Jeremiah is a wonderful example of that kind of simple obedience. But it wasn't just bare obedience. It was also bold faith. That's the thing I think really to see about Jeremiah's example here. His faith in the promises of what God could do. To illustrate that, I want to mention another anecdote from history that reminds me a lot of the purchase that Jeremiah made, a very similar situation, I think illustrates the kind of bold faith that Jeremiah had. It's a story told by the Roman historian Livy, a true story about a siege of the city of Rome. You see, the famous North African general Hannibal had sailed uh, through the Straits of Gibraltar and he had conquered Spain and he had remarkably and very famously traveled over the Alps with his elephants and had attacked the city of Rome. It was a siege very much like the siege of Jerusalem in the days of the Babylonians. Well, it so happened that the very piece of property where Hannibal was camped came up for auction in the Roman marketplace during the siege. There was somebody in Rome that had that property and he wanted to sell it for whatever he could. So it went up for auction and one person bid and then another person bid. And finally, the property was sold without any reduction in value at all. Full price for the property where Hannibal was camped. Well, the word came back to Hannibal, presumably through some spy. He was outraged because he knew what that Roman was saying about this siege and about the military future of the great city of Rome. The person who bought that land had faith that the Romans would overcome their enemies and that he would be able to claim that field for himself. Jeremiah operated with a similar faith in what God could do. Now, Jeremiah knew as well as anyone, because he had prophesied these things for decades, that the Babylonians would come that they would destroy the city, that they would carry the people of God off into exile in Babylon. He knew, in fact, very specifically that it would be a long exile of 70 years. And yet Jeremiah bought that field, believing that God would come and restore his people and he would rebuild their city and he would restore their community. Jeremiah had faith in the promises of God for the future. It's clear that he had this faith from what is said in verse 15. Here's the word that the Lord spoke. Houses and fields and vineyards shall again be bought in this land. You see, here is God's principle of anticipation applied to this particular piece of real estate. God had a plan for the future of his people. He would rebuild his city. And so even though Jeremiah was in jail, and even though the siege engines were at the gates, Jeremiah bought the property believing in what God would do. I think we get a sense of the boldness of his faith from the uh, 
instructions that he gave to Baruch, his secretary, at the end of verse 14, he gives a specific instruction that the, the copies of the deed for the property should be put in a clay jar so that they would last a long time. This was standard practice in those days. If you know anything about the Dead Sea Scrolls, you know it's a pretty good way to keep a document safe in the Middle East. I mean, some of the documents from those days have lasted for thousands of years. I was interested, in fact, to see in the, uh, sh- the, the Shrine of the Book, it's called, a great museum in, near Jerusalem, uh, a property deed from this time period, still preserved from those days. Now, it wasn't this particular field in Anathoth. It would be even better if it were, I suppose. But this was Jeremiah's way of saying, I want you to hold on to this deed because I want to have the evidence 70 years from now, somebody can look at that deed and buy that property and they will know there was a man who had faith in what God would do, who believed that God would keep his promise to his people. And I believe it is always a buyer's market for people who have faith in the promises of God. What a wonderful thing for us to believe right now about the nation of Japan. I have a friend in ministry there, and he was remarking that probably more prayers have been offered for the deliverance and the salvation of the people of Japan in recent weeks than in the whole history of the world. Has the attention of the church ever been focused on the nation of Japan in the way that it has in recent years with people praying, not just for, for relief and, and recovery and economic development, but particularly for people to come to faith in Christ? Another friend of mine from that place, an alumnus of Wheaton College, who's gone there to serve in ministry, wrote back to say that what was tearing his heart out was the knowledge But of those people that had been washed away to sea, 98% of them died without Christ. And yet even in the midst of that kind of devastation, we can have hope in what God has done. And Pastor Scott was giving us that kind of hope, the, the opportunity we have to give and to pray for the people of Japan. And you see, that's the kind of investment that God calls us to make, believing in His power and in the power of the gospel to bring transformation. What kind of vision has God given you for life and for ministry? Jeremiah made his investment decision on the basis of something that God would do 70 years in the future. That gives us a very good standard for testing the kind of things that we are doing with our lives. Am I doing anything that will still make a difference in 2081? Am I giving to gospel work that will make a transformational difference in a community and that work will continue from one generation to the next? Is there someone that I'm praying will come to Christ and then that person may have the opportunity to lead somebody else to Christ and that person may have the opportunity to do ministry and the effect of that will go on and on from decade to decade, from one generation to the next. Every aspect of life and ministry takes faith. That's true for you, really, if you've never given your life to Christ. You have to put your trust in something. I like the words of the poet W.H. Auden. He said, look if you must, but sooner or later you will have to leap somewhere. 
If that's true, then it's worth considering the claims of the Bible and the claims of Christ. But really, every aspect of the Christian life takes faith. It takes faith to do what we've done this morning and worship a God we cannot see and yet believe that He is in in heaven receiving our praise. It takes faith to share the gospel with somebody. I mean, if you're like me, you don't feel like you have all the answers. You're not quite sure what to say or how to witness to somebody, but you can still believe that God can use that and by His Spirit use the Word to, to change somebody's life. It takes faith to believe that. It takes faith to look at the circumstances of a church, not always having all the resources that you want. Sometimes you have to step out in faith before you have all the resources and yet believe and trust in what God will do. I remember a wonderful meeting that we had as a a board of elders in our church. and We had a growing sense that God was calling us to plant another daughter church. But at the time we were really discussing it, we we, we hardly felt like we could give away more of our members. And we were running hundreds of thousands of dollars behind in our financial giving. And yet the elders of the church believed that this was a matter of obedience and made the decision to plant that church, and then stood as a group to sing a doxology of praise to God that He had given us the faith to believe in what He could do, even when we didn't have, humanly speaking, the reasons to see it, yet we could believe in what God would do. That church is thriving today by the grace of God. Think also of the conversation I had with students from Japan. These were theology students in a seminary in Nagoya, one of the larger cities of Japan, and they were visiting us in Philadelphia. And it was, uh, frankly, it was an impressive experience for them because they had never seen such a large church. I mean, a 175-year-old church with a beautiful old sanctuary, a large congregation. And they were, I think, encouraged by these things. But when I asked one of these brothers about the church that, that he was involved with, he was a little apologetic. He said, I mean, you could hardly call it a church. It's just a half dozen people meeting in my living room. And I said, you know, that's how this church began. There were six men that gathered in a little room for prayer, believing that God was beginning to call them to plant a new church in a new part of the city. And 175 years later, that church has sent out hundreds of missionaries. It's thriving in ministry today, but it began just with that, that little bit of vision, those people that didn't feel like they had all the resources they needed, but believed in what God could do. That's the kind of decision that Jeremiah made. And I believe it is always a buyer's market for people who have faith in the living God because he is able to deliver on his promises. But now I need to tell you honestly that sometimes when you step out in faith, that kind of bold faith, obedient faith like Jeremiah did, and sometimes as soon as you do that, you start to have your doubts. Sometimes difficulties come. Sometimes there are discouragements, and sometimes you wonder, is this, is this really what God called me to do? Jeremiah came to a place like that, and I think his example helps us not just in making those bold steps of faith and obedience, but also knowing how to bring your concerns before the Lord when you're struggling with the decisions that you've already made. Look again down in Jeremiah 32 at verse 24 and 25. This is the end of Jeremiah's prayer. And I want you to see that he's taking his struggles to the Lord. He says, look, the, the siege engines have come up to the city to destroy it. He talks here about sword and famine and pestilence. The city 
given over into the hands of the Babylonians. He says, Lord, look, you, you see the whole situation. I don't need to tell you this, tell, the, tell, you, tell you about it. You see it. And yet, seriously, Lord, you said to me, buy the field for money and have it witnessed even though the city is handed over into the hands of the Babylonians. In most translation, English translations, it ends with a period. I think it's supposed to have a question mark at the end of it. He's saying, Lord, you, is this really what you told me? I mean, I've done it, but is it really, really what you told me to do? Jeremiah's prayer, I think, gives us a wonderful way to pray when we are similarly perplexed. We don't understand what God is doing. We don't understand the, the troubles that are happening in the world. We grieve with our Japanese brothers and sisters. We share concern with our Egyptian brothers and sisters and our Libyan friends about what's happening in their places. But sometimes it's very close to home. You, you have an unexpected medical issue. You, you didn't expect it at all. You're not sure what, what God's doing. It certainly wasn't in your plans. You have some doubt or uncertainty about a work situation. There's a burden for a family trouble that's keeping you up at night. You hardly even know how to pray about it. Well, this is the way to pray when we are perplexed. Let me just mention briefly the outline of Jeremiah's prayer. It's a good outline for us to pray, to follow. And maybe a good prayer for us to mark in our Bibles, Jeremiah 32, 17 to 25, a good way to pray when you're not sure how to pray. First thing that he does is simply to groan about his situation. Ah, Lord. Literally, oi, or you might say, oi vey, if there are any Yiddish speakers here this morning. It's a, a cry of consternation. It's a sigh of difficulty. It's a groan of dismay. But even that can be a very good way to pray if you're doing that in the presence of God. The Scripture says that the Holy Spirit, the very Spirit of God, helps us when we pray. And He groans with us when our groaning is inarticulate. Paul talks about this in Romans 8, that the Holy Spirit takes our groaning and turns it into prayer, prayer that God can understand even if we don't know the words. Jeremiah took his groan to the Lord in prayer. Secondly, this is the second part, he started with the groan. The second thing he started to do was to recount all of the things that God had done. He talks in verse 17 about God's power over creation, the heavens and the earth by His great power and outstretched arm, the mighty work of God in creation. We see it every time we go outdoors. We see it every time we look at the human beings that God has made in His image. This winter, I've enjoyed the presence of a hawk who lives on the top of Blanchard Tower on the campus of Wheaton College, a terror to local squirrels from what I've observed. But to me, a delight. I mean, I see the hawk circling and then coming in for a landing. I get out of my chair. I say, praise God, what a beautiful bird. But that's what Jeremiah did. He recounted the things that God had done, and not just in creation, but also in redemption, in the work of salvation. He goes down in verse 20. He talks about God delivering His people from Egypt, that great exodus that you'll be studying together, apparently, as a congregation in, in coming months. The, the signs, the wonders, the miracles that God did, the way that He saved His people. Jeremiah recounted all of that in his prayer. He wanted to look back and remind himself what God had done. That's the way to pray when we're in difficulty. Don't just 
focus in on the difficulties, but start thinking about what God has done, His great work of salvation, including the things He's done in your own life, the time He provided when you weren't sure how He was going to provide, the time He gave direction when you weren't sure which way to go. Maybe you're back in that place again, but you can look back and see. Now, God is a God who helps people in that kind of situation. Jeremiah didn't stop there with what God had done. He also wanted to praise God. This was the third thing for who He is. Not just the work of God, but the being of God. His, his attributes, His perfections. And this too would repay careful study. He praises God here for His love, His covenant love poured out from generation to generation. Praises God for His justice. Praises God for His knowledge of all things, for His omnipotent power. And by the time Jeremiah has done all of this, by the time he's, he's grown, because that's all that he could do at the beginning, and then praised God for what he has done and praised God for who he is, after all of that, finally, he is ready to bring before God his problem and make his petition. And when he does it, he does it in an interesting way. I mean, if you look at verses 24 and 25, there's not really a request there. It's just kind of a question. Seriously, Lord, I'm not even sure how to pray about this, but I'm, I'm struggling with, have you really called me to do what it, it seems like you've called me to do? Maybe you're at a similar time in life. I, I spoke with someone this week who believed, based on his own experience of God's healing in his own life, that God was calling him for a ministry to people who had suffered sexual abuse, particularly in childhood. And he has found it very difficult because, frankly, there are a lot of people who would rather not talk about something like that. A lot of people, sadly, that wouldn't even want to bring that kind of healing discussion into a church. So he's found the work difficult, but he believes that God called him to this work. And so he continues to, to pray it through and to, to see God's provision as he continues to pray. That's what we ought to do with our perplexities in life. Sometimes it's like this. We, we start with a groan and sometimes we run out of our ability to pray even before we get to the petition. But it's wonderful how God answers even a prayer like that. See God's answer down in verse 27. He says, Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all humanity. Is anything too hard for me? You see, God called Jeremiah to recognize His mighty power. It's an interesting answer to the prayer because if you go back to the end of verse 17, it's, it's Jeremiah knew this already. He had said in his own prayer, God, nothing is too hard for you. And yet by the time he got to the end of his prayer, he maybe wasn't so sure about that. And so God came to him and said, Jeremiah, you've got the right God. If you're praying to the God for whom nothing is impossible, I am that God. Nothing is too hard for me. Or we might translate maybe even more accurately, nothing is too wonderful for me, too marvelous for me, too far beyond what you can imagine that I would do. I am the God of love and grace and power and deliverance. And when you pray to this God, you will receive the answer that only such a God can bring. And as we think about our own troubles in life, our own perplexities, the, the vision for ministry that God is giving us, His calling of obedience that He is inviting us to follow, as we think about these things, we should not just think about the vision that we have for what God can do, but the vision that God has for us. 
And as we think about that, I want to remind you that Jesus Christ once made an investment in a piece of property. It was actually the least promising piece of property in the entire universe. The one place in all of the galaxies where all of the troubles began. And yet it was in the heart of God to make purchase on that property for himself. And so the Son of God came into our neighborhood. He took on the flesh of our humanity. He found, frankly, that this was the most dangerous neighborhood in the universe. Here was the one place that would actually do him harm. But he settled on the property. And he paid the costliest price that anyone has ever paid for anything. The precious, infinitely valuable life blood of the very Son of God, which He offered on the cross as the, the payment for sin. He paid that full price for sin, infinitely valuable, deadly in payment. And We might ask of Jesus the same question that we asked of Jeremiah, why did you do it? Why would you pay so much for what might seem to be so little? Jesus did it because of the principle of anticipation. The Scripture says that for the joy that was set before Him, He endured the cross, despising its shame, and is now seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. That's an expression of the principle of anticipation. Jesus did it for the joy that would be His. The joy that would be His when we believe in Him and come to Him and receive His forgiveness and enter into His Father's joy with Him. Jesus did it with the anticipation of the joy. I believe it is a buyer's market for anyone who believes in this Savior, remembering the investment that He has made in you. Will you now make whatever investment He is calling you to make for Him? Our Father in heaven, we give you praise for the costly sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray for a bold faith and obedience like Jeremiah to do whatever it is that you are calling us to do for Jesus' sake and in his name, amen.